wake up to the power of love because love is the force that actually creates the universe and holds it together and nobody knows that because it hasn't been taught to people in the religion but love is the great creative force of the universe and we are part of that creation so put love out wherever you can Hey, and welcome to this episode of Mother Unearthed, where we explore the lost history of the feminine. On today's episode, we have the legendary Anne Bering. Anne was born in 1931, making her a wise 91 years old as of this recording. She's Oxford educated and a Jungian analyst, also the author and co-author of seven books, including her most recent, The Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul which was awarded the Scientific and Medical Network Book Prize. The ground of all of her work is a deep interest in the spiritual, mythological, shamanic, and artistic traditions of different cultures. We cover a huge range of topics with Anne, including the lost peaceful matrilineal societies of what she calls the lunar era, the shortcomings of where we are today and how hard it can be to change, also, how women raising their voices can save the world, and how everything comes back to connecting with our soul and with love. We were honored to have Anne on the podcast as she has been working through and writing about these topics for decades. We are big believers in highlighting and learning from our female elders, and Anne is a force with an incredible message and burning fire. She's still working to release yet another book later this year. We hope you enjoy the episode. And you've written numerous books. You've done so much research and writing on the feminine and the divine feminine throughout your career. I think to kick off this conversation, it would be wonderful if you could share your definition of the feminine since we'll be referring to that a lot throughout our conversation, what does the feminine mean to you or from your vantage point? Well, it means a totally different perspective on life, understanding that life is not just there for the grabbing, but that it has a purpose. It is an absolute miracle in itself. It's really about recognizing that everything we see around us, including the vastness of the universe, is sacred. It's come into being from a sacred source, and it's saturated with sacredness. Secondly, it's the faculty of wisdom, which is sadly missing in our world. It's the ability to act from that different perspective. That's what wisdom is, the ability to act from that different perspective, knowing that everything is sacred and that you are part of that sacredness. That's beautiful. I love that reference to the sacred and the wisdom. It almost even implies allowing for a slowness to our lives that we don't really welcome as much right now. I think we live in a completely mad society. I think <laughs> people are exhausted by the amount of information that's coming in. I'm exhausted, really exhausted, because there's a thousand times more information than there was, say, 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago. Keeping up with it all, it's just like running a race that you're in all the time, like a marathon. You can't stop because in case you stop, you're going to lose things. So we're all driven by this frantic, um, anxiety that something is going to be missed that's of great importance. And in doing all that, we miss the most important thing of all, which is this change of consciousness that we really need to take on. <laughs> One of the most 
interesting and unique ideas that we've heard as part of your work is this idea that you have of the lunar, solar, and stellar eras. We were hoping to give our audience a bit of background on how we got to where we are today, and we thought you were the perfect person to come to for that. Would you be able to perhaps like talk about that concept overall and then could dive into each different era and try to understand each one a little bit better? Well, there are basically three major phases in our evolutionary story. The first one is what I call the lunar era, which was really governed by the image of the moon. The moon was terribly important. There's a wonderful man called Alexander Marshak who wrote a book called The Roots of Civilization, which we put into our myth of the goddess. It's a huge book, but he discovered that lunar notations go back at least 50,000 years, marked onto mammoth bone and things like that. So people were very conscious of the moon. They were noting what was happening with the moon, and they were noting what was the relationship between what was happening in the moon and their own lives and also the life around them, because they connected the phases of the moon with the phases of the uh, nature, uh, whether you know the, the the different phases of the birth of spring, so to speak, which we're in now, and then the summer of the fullness, full moon, and then the autumn, the waning moon, and then winter, the dark moon. So they see the connections. Well, I'll talk about the Great Mother because what they devised or what they thought then was that the whole of creation, what everything around them, including themselves and all the animals, came from the womb of the Great Mother. It, there was no creator beyond creation because the great mother was creation as well as the womb. So that everything was connected, all the animals, all the plants, all the human beings, they were all part of the life that came from the mother's womb. That was terribly important. And also they noted with the moon that the 10 lunar months of woman's gestation in the womb of the child she was bearing corresponded to the uh, 10 lunar months of, of the moon. So that's how they counted when their baby would be born through the 10 uh, lunar months that they were living through, so to speak. So they just watched everything. Everything was connected through her being. So there was a vast web of relationship. And this idea continued right the way down to Plato because he, he called the soul of the cosmos. That's what he called the soul of the cosmos, which was a great web of relationship. That idea of relationship endured right up to Plato. And then it began to fade. So the earth was a thou. It wasn't an it, like we call it now, sort of thing, nor was it a she, like Gaia. It was it, a thou, a holy thing, a sacred thing. Everything was sacred and alive, and even the rocks and the trees and the water and the mountains and the plants were all alive with spirit and could be communicated with by man. They weren't separated from, man wasn't separated from his environment like we are today. The indigenous people today in many countries still have this ability. They know this, they have that wisdom, and they have shamanic skills, which we've lost. Our shamanic skills were repressed, I regret to say, by the religious traditions who put the lid on them mm -hmm. and want them messing around with their Conditions. And there was a cyclical time. This lunar thing gave people a feeling of the cyclical nature of time, that what started in the beginning would go round and then come back to a new beginning. And there would be rebirth or regeneration, just like the moon was regenerated with every new cycle. It was such a sort of foundational teaching, really, that people took on and went, it went deep into their souls. And everything was related to that. So I've said here that 
the months connected with gestation time of the child in the womb. Uh, psychedelic drugs at that time were used from plants. They had hallucinogenic drugs, which gave them the visionary power with the help of the shamans to see into this inner world that was behind the physical creation of what we call matter. They knew that there was all behind because they could see into it and they lived into it. They had the experience of it like they do today with the Peruvian shamans or the Mongolian shamans or the South African ones or the North American ones. You know, they all knew about this inner dimension of the universe. Yeah, and I was I was curious what your take on that was because we've seen in the last few years quite a resurgence of interest in psychedelic research, psychedelic usage, more people expanding their consciousness using those ancient tools that we've had. So I'm, I'm curious what you make of that resurgence. I'm, I know it was shut down for many years in America. It was forbidden. And it's just beginning to get going again now. I think under controlled conditions, not just jumping into it for fun, but under controlled um, conditions, I think it's a very helpful thing. They, they found it's very helpful, for instance, in the uh, last phases of cancer. People who are dying, it gives them hope in their survival and it gives them quite a different view of their suffering and everything. So I think it's a good thing. By the way, I can recommend an absolutely marvelous book called LSD and the Mind of the Universe by Christopher Beish. He's a great friend of mine. I've read that. It's a phenomenal book. Yeah. So that's what it can lead to under controlled conditions, which he was very careful over 20 years to have his wife sitting by his side record everything and take the greatest care with what he was doing. So I, I don't recommend that everybody should jump into it. It's something to be approached with great caution and wisdom. You know, why am I doing this? Is it just to get some gain for myself or, or is it to enter the soul of the universe and learn more about it? Yeah, exactly. I think from my perspective, it also shows how, you know, there's just a lot of craving from people to more deeply connect with themselves, with each other, to explore that oneness consciousness that we've been severed from for quite some time. It's been really interesting to see that resurgence kind of come about. And I'm sure we'll get to that once we get into the stellar era. So the lunar era to be clear for our listeners, so what time frame in our understanding of time does the lunar era represent? I would say it goes from, say, do you remember the caves in, in uh, the Dordogne area of France? They go back to 35,000 BC. There's evidence of man painting these images on the walls of the caves from that actual date. I think it's actually 32,000 BC. It's very ancient, and it went on up to about 2000 BC, so quite a long time, I'd say 50,000 years, very, very long incubation period of that. I'd like to mention the work of uh, Marija Gimbutas, who was one of the greatest archaeologists of the last century. She presented actual physical evidence of goddess culture, and she was very much doubted, as I understand it, by the archaeological community. But in like 2017, her work was vindicated. She was vindicated by uh, Lord Colin. Yeah, yeah. Renfro, maybe, who was one of the doubters of her work. Who really went for her, poor thing. And she, I think she died 
of cancer and she was deeply, deeply wounded by all the attacks. That's trauma again. It's so interesting because what vindicated her was actual DNA evidence that's like today we can look at 23andMe and see because there were these goddess-worshipping cultures that were wiped out by horse-riding, sky-god-worshipping conquerors. So to me, it's so interesting that new technology is proving to us that this is real and true. And her work that was doubted for so long is vindicated. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very glad you brought that up because it's very, very important. And it, as you say, it vindicated her and it, it uh, revalued all, all that she'd done. Because what she discovered was a great unknown civilization, a Neolithic civilization, that existed from 6,500 BC to 3,500 BC. So that's 3,000 years. That's 1,000 years longer than our own sort of time span. During that time, it was throughout sort of a main central Europe, sort of Italy, Greece, Crete, Romania, Ukraine, it included, Moldavia, um, all the sort of Eastern Europe countries, not France and England, not, not those ones, but starting with Italy going eastwards, right up to the borders of Russia, which is very interesting. I'll just read what she said here. There are no depiction mm. of arms in Paleolithic cave paintings, nor are there remains of weapons used by man against man during the Neolithic old Europe. That's the, the period that she was writing about, these 3,000 years from 150 paintings to survive from Çatalhöyük, that's in Turkey, there is not one depicting a scene of conflict or fighting or of war or torture. Çatalhöyük was one of the great Neolithic centers in Turkey that uh, people have discovered, and they've discovered another one at uh, Göbekli Tepe, Göbekli Tepe, which is even more amazing. And that goes back to 8,000 years. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. So there are these discoveries which are coming out. We haven't even reached the, hardly scratched the surface of, of what existed then and what could still come out of the um, archaeologists' um, discoveries. Yeah, because the lunar era was an incredibly long period of time, as you're highlighting, Anne. I'm curious, what's your what's your take? Why do you think that may be that there was no depiction or evidence of violence and weapons? Well, I think people lived in very small communities. They didn't live in big city-states when that was when war began starting. And so, and also their whole um, thing was on survival. So probably cooperation was an element of that with other tribes or other um, clans. Instead of fighting them, they came together to see how can we enhance our lives? How can we make them better or safer or whatever? I know that in the in the history books, it's always presented that uh, there's a man with a great club clubbing another man or doing something awful. <laughs> but I think that's a complete fabrication, and I think it's not true. And from I trust Gimbutas absolutely on that, no matter what anybody says. I really do. And she did such thorough research in her archaeological work, and she found so many images of the goddess, who was obviously a goddess culture, and it was a culture where male and female roles were balanced, I think. The men obviously went after the food, and the, and the women did the, the gathering and looking after the children, I'm quite sure. So there were 50,000 years of, of women's experience of looking after, bringing children to birth and then raising them, while the men went off to supply the, the food. 
And it, there was no rivalry. There was no jealousy or envy or rivalry between them. They, it was a cooperative thing. They, they had to do that to survive. Otherwise, the children would have died. Yeah. If they had gone hunting as well, the children would have died. <laughs> and that would have been that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a much more harmonious, cooperative sort of I think it was based on cooperation. Being. And I think the whole thing, yeah. with the, the rivalry with, the Neand with Neanderthals um, is, again, not true. I think there were two different uh, species of, of, of homo, whatever he's called. I can't remember now the correct name. Two, <laughs> two species of man living together, probably side by side, and again cooperating, not killing each other and getting rid of one. And we don't know why the Neanderthals died out, but they did slowly leaving only homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. And so then we moved from this long period of the lunar era of, you know, being connected with nature, with our shamanic roots, a more cooperative uh, kind of base lens of the world into the solar era, which to my understanding is where we are today. So how did that kind of transition occur? And how does the the trauma injured during this solar era affect all of us? Well, the solar era, which is what I call the phase of separation from nature, which we're still in, we're only just beginning to be aware of the need to reconnect with nature. That started around mm -hmm. 2000 BC. And I think it started in the Middle East with the rivalry between the city-states because as the population grew in the settled communities now, you know, agricultural communities, there were probably a lot of met, like young men with nothing to do. And so they sort of incorporated, incorporated them into um, small armies. Each city-state built up its small army probably. And then they began to fight. Um, I, can't, I don't know why exactly they, they did, but there were quite a few cities in, say, Suma, um, and they did start to fight. And there was a man called, a king called Sargon of Akkad, whose date was 2200, I think. And he started to conquer the whole land um, between the um, river of Suma, what's it called, the Tigris, and the Mediterranean, or between, between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. So that, that was basically what he aimed, out, aimed to con conquer. And that was the beginning of great empires. This was the first empire. And then the followed, that was followed by the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Roman, and the Greek, <laughs> one, one after the other, all of which were based on conquest. So the idea of conquest came in. The idea of power over others came in. The idea of slavery came in. There were millions and millions of slaves in these conquered countries or nations. So this was a whole utter change from the lunar period, partly because of the growth of population, partly because of the formation of these city-states, partly because psychopathic leaders wanted more territory and more power and more glory. Because if they could be mm -hmm. as a great warrior, they sort of were the head of their, whatever it was, their community. So it was the warrior which gave the status to the, to the men of that time. And young men obviously wanted to be warriors so that they could be famous too, so to speak. So they, they joined, or they were forced to join, I don't know which, 
these armies which mm -hmm. grew in size until you have huge armies like the Persian army or the Roman army, colossal numbers. It's fascinating to hear you speak of that, and that's a connection I'm not sure I've made personally before about the formation of the city-states and the population growth. Sounds like was a big catalyst and contributor into sort of that transition into the solar era, our disconnection from nature because we were in these much more dense, higher population areas with each other. That's fascinating. And, and also people were thinking more in terms of a control of nature. They, they were beginning to, to grow really big crops to feed these larger populations. And so the in Suma, and certainly in Egypt, you still had the deep relationship with the land, and you had a sense of the land still being a vow. But as time went on, that began to fade. It was more about how can I get the next bit of land which will make me greater? How can I increase my power? That is when the, the thing shifted from the sacred to the non-sacred. There's a very subtle shift, and also you get the movement from the great mother to the rise of the great father over a long period, probably a thousand years. But that also, because the Great Father was up in heaven and because creation was not seen as part of him, like it was of the Great Mother, you got the separation coming in between spirit up there and earth or nature or matter down here, so to speak. And gradually, nature became less and less sacred and matter, what we call matter, became less and less sacred. More and more power went to the priesthoods who were worshipping the transcendent God. And immense power the priesthoods had of the, of the religions that grew up during the solar era to control the population. And this is where the idea which we need to be aware of now, how we are controlled still by our unconscious obedience to authority, is deeply, deeply in us that we had to obey first the rulers and then the priests. Uh, and the women priests were gradually shut out. They no longer had temples in which they could worship the goddess. There was only the god who was worshipped. And there were no priests. You never heard women's voice from 2000 BC on. Or hardly ever. You had it in, in Enhedwana, the last one, the great priestess of, of um, Suma, Enhedwana. Do you know about her? Mm -hmm. So she was one of the last voices to speak up of women. And, and the, the lament at that time, when there was a great suffering and um, people being killed, was a, a lament of why has this has happened? You know, where can we flee for safety? There's no safety anywhere. And this was around, around 2300 BC, that sort of time, onwards. So you had mm -hmm. rather chaotic time for, for, for a long time, and that is when the trauma came in, because instead of doing peace, right. you um, trauma lasts for four generations anyway. But you, have you heard of Stanislav Grof, his work? Mm -hmm. Well, he found yes. he found in his work that uh, trauma is carried in the collective psyche. The memories don't go away. We have trauma carried in us probably from that period. It's deeply, deeply, very Absolutely. collective psyche. And what's going on? And I, I think your, ref yeah, your reference that um, we're still under this sort of sense of control and obedience to power that rose during the solar era, I'd be curious, you know, what else you think society 
today is is still kind of enduring or what are some of those other byproducts of this era that we've been in for quite a while now? I think we're deeply traumatized by what we've experienced and we're deeply conditioned to accept what authority tells us. I mean, look at the lockdown everywhere. Look at the power of governments to lock everybody down. Look at the trauma that's created. Great example, and yes. they were completely ignorant of what the trauma they were created. And they're still pushing these vaccines, although they're known to be dangerous and um, fatal in many cases, but they still go on pushing them. And people listen to them. Half the population, or I don't know how exactly what proportion, does what they're told. And the other half is waking up and saying, we're not going to do any more if this is killing our children. We're not going on with this ridiculous charade. But it's very difficult to wake up because the conditioning is so powerful. It's immensely powerful. It's deep, deep, deep within the psyche that if you don't obey, you're going to um, die or something awful will happen to you. So obedience holds the collective together. And it's very difficult to break down the bonds that have been created over thousands of years. And also fear has always been used. First of all, fear of God was used by the priesthoods. And now it's fear of death. If you don't do what we say, you're going to die. And that's Mm -hmm. extremely powerful um, psychologically. And it creates what is called a mass, I call it a mass hypnosis. It's not exactly a psychosis, but it's a mass hypnosis where the whole population is hypnotized into obedience by what governments are saying to them. And nobody dares um, say anything else. And also the media are uh, part of the government machinery. They don't tell the truth. They tell what they're told to say. So that's another thing. We don't have an honest media anywhere. I don't have it in the UK. You don't have it in in the US. And I doubt if it exists anywhere in China. Look at China. It's completely controlled. So we're living in this phase when we have to break out of this control. We can come back to that at the end, I think, of your questions. But just bear in mind that this is where it all started. And this is with with the development of writing, and only the priests knew about writing, so the population were ignorant, as it were. They just went on with their patterns of life. And these tribal units came down the corridor between the Black and the Caspian Seas from the Russian steppes. And they spread. That was the beginning of patriarchy because over the next two, three thousand years, they spread eastwards into the Middle East, into Persia and into India, where they established the caste system eventually. So it was a very long period of the imposition of patriarchy. That's very important that you brought this up because it came originally from these sky worshipping people who had the horse. Um, they um, managed to, to make the horse do what they wanted. And they had um, these chariots with swords and things, which they could put on, not swords, but what have knives on them. So they were terrifying to have the poor people who had suddenly confronted Who didn't have any weapons or a way to defend themselves. The horse either, though there's no way they could get away from them. And they brought with them this hierarchical or hierarchical organization of society, which we've still got. We've got government at the top <laughs> and the people down below. And so this is where it all came from. And it's not an egalitarian society that we have now at all. And democracy means very little. It means just verbal sort of stuff. Underneath democracy is very, very harsh control. <laughs> 
And that came in mm-hmm. with these people that came down from, from the steppes. And as I said, they spread right the way through the Middle East and, and Persia and further and as far as India. And then you got even more warlike um, civilizations because of that, because they were then controlled by these different kinds of people, these different kinds of men. And again, the warrior, the emphasis on the warrior was tremendous. But what we've got now is an ideology which says this is the way things are. And I'd like to come to that more at the end, if I may, because I want to talk about the influence of the great father. That's terribly important, that the movement to looking up to the sky rather than down to the earth and no relationship with the earth yeah. and also the repression of women, women's voice. And as part of that, the myth of the fall is terribly important. It started in the Hebrew tradition around um, 621 precisely when a group of priests took over the first temple in Jerusalem and got rid of the goddess, got rid of every sign that she'd ever existed and impose their own rule instead. But the goddess had been called the Holy Spirit and divine wisdom. Those were her two titles, as well as queen of heaven. And she was the partner of the god. She wasn't a sort of under, under, understudy, I was going to say, but they created heaven and earth together. That was the original story. But the Deuteronomists, as they were called, they changed the whole story, got rid of the goddess, so there's only the god. And that was the beginning of the sole monotheistic God that we still have today hanging around. That was hugely important because Christianity took on the God of the Old Testament and no feminine element whatsoever, completely unaware that there could have been or was a feminine element. And so they had the Virgin Mary, but that wasn't the same as being the divine feminine in the Godhead. So this was a very important period, this uh, 621 date, hugely important because it was the beginning of the um, reducing women to a state of slavery, virtual, and silence, because of Eve bringing in the apple, biting the apple and giving it to Adam. It was all her fault. She brought uh, sin, death, and evil into the world. Those were the three things, sin, death, and evil. Why do you think that erasure was done for the most part? It happened, I think, because I think a century before that, Do you remember the Assyrians came in and they took the 10 tribes of Israel into captivity and no more was ever heard from again from them? They disappeared utterly off the face of the earth. It was the first example of ethnic cleansing. And I think what happened was that the goddess was blamed for that. They were looking around for someone to blame and thought, oh, she did it. She caused the Assyrians to come in and take all these people away. And that there was one king before that 621 day called Hezekiah who also took the goddess out of the temple, but he didn't destroy every sort of remnant of her. But it was a king called Josiah in 621 who did the the hatchet job under him, it was done, so to speak. So the the truth is gradually coming out about what happened, not only through the myth of the goddess and my other book, The Dream of the Cosmos, but through other books that have been written in the last 30 years. I think what happened was in war, women were raped and taken into slavery. Men were killed in battle. All this created a huge trauma. And we have the beginning of the mind-body separation with the emphasis on mind and body being relegated to an um, unimportant sort of thing or even an evil thing later on. The, 
you know, because of sexuality and the fear of sexuality, people began to look upon the body with not exactly contempt, but fear. The body was, was something that might lead women into temptation, sexual temptation. And always woman was blamed for that. It wasn't man's fault, it was woman, <laughs> naturally. Throughout this time, we also had the development of writing and mathematics, architecture, astronomy, huge cultural achievements, huge architectural achievements, going right back to Egypt and Sumer and right up to the present day. But we had, most importantly, we had the separation of matter from spirit. This went with the separation of the goddess from the god. Instead of having the sacred marriage, which always existed in the old civilizations, which brought uh, spirit and matter together, you had a growing separation between them until you get to the point where the science thinks we can do anything we want in technology, we can do anything we want with matter. It doesn't matter what we do to matter. It's ours to control, it's ours to shape, it's ours to use. About the yeah, scientific materialism, I need to get back if, if, if you'd like to, because this is teaching terrible ideas. It's the belief that the universe is not alive and intelligent, but is dead and that life came being by chance in the so-called Big Bang. And it says that we're the only conscious beings in the universe and that consciousness originates in our physical brain, nowhere else. So when we die, that's the end of us. There's no survival of the soul. There's no soul and no God. So they've got rid of the whole lot and they've set up a firewall which people are too frightened to go beyond because they get criticized and ridiculed. At my age, I don't care what I and how ridiculed I get because I know what I'm talking about. This is a terrible philosophy and it's gone on for three centuries since about, so, as I say, about 1750s, 1800s, through the Enlightenment when many discoveries were made, but also there was a growing feeling that we can do what we want with the planet. It's ours to control. There's no God telling us what to do anymore. No God that we need to be frightened of. And that's so much in the Adam and Eve story, that man is to dominate nature. It's already there. and He's been, been put over in control and Adam was put, given dominion over the animals. But it probably was a mistranslation that, that that dominion thing may have been something that slipped in whoever did the translation. So we don't know exactly what the original, unless one knows the Hebrew, which I don't, don't know about that. So I think that this is at the root of, of a lack of values and morality in our present culture, and also mental illness, because if there's nothing underneath us, nothing to appeal to for help or, or um, assistance, really, nothing, there's no point to our lives other than what we can get out of the material world. That's, that's the root of greed and, and the need to acquire things, which is a, um, materialism is actually covers the word matter, mother in it, <laughs> matter. Um, interesting. It's the, comp the, the compensation to the lack of the mother, if you like, the material things that we have to have so many of. And I think, that, I mean, if you look at the suicides of young people who come to the feeling, well, there's nothing there for me in the future. I'm, I'm not worth anything. My life's not worth anything. I might as well just finish it all. It's just all too difficult. I'm, I'm unhappy all the time. So, so there's terrible ignorance at, at the root of the way we're brought up now, the way children are brought up, the science that they're taught is completely amoral. It has no feeling of sensitivity and care for the earth at all. It's more, much more 
what is the next thing we can discover which will give us this, that, and the other? A1 technology, for instance. So much to cover and understand from the solar era and our more recent history, right? Where a lot of what you're not acknowledging, we're seeing the rise of control, both of the population and wanting to control nature, disconnection from spirit, disconnection from ourselves, violence, obedience. A lot of these themes have risen throughout the solar era that you've highlighted for us, Anne, which is fascinating to understand and, and makes sense in, in a lot of what we've all experienced in society today. Yes, you in your 30s were brought up with these ideas, presumably, unless you had a religious background there. And the main thing is that people have lost touch with their soul because they don't know they have a soul. They don't know what the soul is. And they think they have only mind mind and body, and they think that they can do anything they want with the body because there's nothing to do that they can't do what they want. One other thing I thought was very interesting in this work that you discussed was also just like the relationship to time, like the lunar era, as you highlighted earlier in our conversation, was very cyclical, right? We were looking at 10-month cycles. We were following the moon. We understood that that time came cyclical and in the solar area, time seems to be a lot more linear and, and future focused. And I think that also does a lot that pulls us out of that mind-body connection, pulls us out of ourselves and into some future state. So I'm curious if you have any, any comments there on even just that difference in the perception of time and how that's influenced both eras. Well, I think it gives one a sense of pressure, always behind one, pushing one to do more, get more, discover more. It's behind all the scientific discoveries of the universe, really. They want to explore what's out there, which is nothing wrong with that at all. But there's a sense of competition between different nations, which is tragic, really. And a sense also that we can just do what we want. We can take over the um, universe with our intelligence, because materialism, scientific materialism, says that we are the only conscious people in the universe. There are no other beings out there that need, we need to take account of. There's no God. There's no angels. So we can just go for it. And you get that with A1 te technology. You get this feeling of pushing, pushing, pushing to the next discovery, which will then give us more power, always more power with a big P. And so all the sense of relationship is lost. There's no relationship with the Earth, no relationship with the cosmos. We want to dominate it just like we dominate the Earth. And no relationship with each other, which is fading more and more as we depend more on Internet technology. I think that's a great segue. I'd love to move on to the stellar era. If you could help us understand the time we're in now, and I know you call that this time a time of choice. Absolutely. The most important phase we're at now, which is this time of choice, where we make a decision between whether we go with the old story still, continuing with this rivalry between nations, which will lead us to catastrophe, the three nations being China, Russia, and the US. It's a dreadful thing that we're on. It's like a terrible sort of rat race. And unless we break that pattern, and I think only women can break it, I will come to that in a minute. Women have the power to break it if they come together and say, we've had enough of all these wars. We've had enough of the killing of our sons. We've had enough of the rape of our daughters. 
we will not tolerate this anymore. Their voice could be strong enough if they all came together. I'm about to set out a petition, send, sending out a petition to stop war created by two friends of mine and myself. It's going out in May. And this will be the start of a new movement, I hope, which will reach thousands or millions and millions of women uh, with the courage to stand up and say, we will not tolerate this continued endless battle for power, struggle for power between nations, between people, between different technologies, making more and more weapons. All that has been the wrong way that we've been on for a very long time, this pathway we've been the last two and a half thousand years at least, but I think more like 4,000. So, but it could be the phase of our reunion with the divine ground and the discovery that we are divine beings, part of the divinity of the whole universe. This is a new thought that's coming in right through quite different schools. It's coming in through um, Matthew Fox is one of the teachers of this. The scientist Nassim Haramein is another one. A man called Greg Braden, these are extraordinary men who are teaching this. There's something called um, Humanities Team with its leader, Steve Farrell, which is bringing all these people together. There's the man who wrote Conversations with God. I can't remember his name, but he's written many books called Conversations with God, Volume 1, 2, and 3, etc. These are all highly awake men and women who are bringing this new revelation to America mainly but it's spreading from America to, to my country and other countries as well. But in the midst of the chaos that America's in, there are these bright lights which we can find, find out, and I listen to quite a few of them. There's also the Shift Network that's been teaching people in America for years and years and years how to change their consciousness, how to learn new things, and how to discover aspects of themselves that they didn't know exist. They've also I did a nine-month course with a Peruvian shaman with the Shift Network, so they're introducing all that is available if people knew about it. And when you say change their consciousness, can you speak a little bit more to what that means? Yeah, what it involves is, is realizing that I said in the beginning that everything is sacred and that we are part of that. Everything is divine. It's not just there for our taking. And what methods of service can we find in our own lives? It might be bringing up the children, it might be looking after animals, our dogs and the cats, it might be doing something in the community which brings help to people and comfort or um, even food to people now, food is short in some places. There are many things that can be done if we think in a different way, if we think what can I do to serve, not what can I do to get. Those are the two different, as it were, different um, paths that we can take. And it's not difficult to switch from one to the other once you begin to think about it. But we need to think of ourselves in a completely new way, that we are part of this divinity. We're not separate from it. We're part of what we've been worshipping for thousands of years. And this is quite a new thought, and it's coming to us from quantum physics. Quantum physics doesn't speak about the divinity of nature, but it speaks about the oneness of everything. And it speaks about the connection of all of us to everything else that is inseparable. You can't separate anything out from the whole. And I think that's such an, that's a revelation. It's the new revelation that's coming into our consciousness. It really is. And I think the frame of 
how can we be of service is a powerful one for many to consider. You also referenced earlier how difficult it can be for people to actually go through this process of waking up from the programming and conditioning that's so deep in many of us. You know, how else can can someone reawaken to the sacred and and reawaken? It often happens through a crisis in someone's life. Life it could come through the death of a child, say, or the death of a parent, makes them waking up to a different kind of awareness of, of, of sorrow and grief. It could come through a loss of a job or a discovery of a new job or a feeling that I can't stand this job any longer, I have to move. It can come through a shamanic initiation when you, when you go through a kind of death experience, which the alchemical tradition speaks about. You have to go through what they call the negredo, until you begin to wake up. In other words, there's a great period of suffering when you don't know what's happening to you. You may be in a deep depression. You may be suicidal because there's nothing there. What was it in? Negredo? Negredo. Blackness means blackness. Blackness. Oh, okay. And it was compared to the wing of a raven. That They compared it. The raven was, was the symbol that presided over that phase. And then they said the next phase is the albedo, which is the whitening phase, which they compared to the moonlight and to the feminine, the feminine coming back into consciousness instead of this masculine structure of consciousness we've got now. You have the awakening to a different kind of consciousness, which is about relationship and love and caring and compassion. All those things are vitally important because of the parts of the feminine archetype and wisdom. So you begin to wake up, your consciousness begins to clarify. If you persevere with this, then you have the final revelation, which is called the rubido, the reddening, which is the light of the dawn coming. Reddening. Reddening, yeah. Rising of the sun. The rising of the sun of enlightenment, not the sun of the solar era, which was more about sort of power and everything, but the sun of enlightenment comes in the third stage of alchemy. So mind and soul can come together again. If you go through this initiation, because it is an initiation, you bring together your mind, which you thought was everything, with your neglected soul and the whole area of your heart. You move down from the head into the heart and you become aware of what your heart is feeling and you pay attention to it. doesn't mean to say you spread your feelings in every direction like jam, but you pay attention to what your heart is telling you. I don't like this job. I'm not happy with this husband or this wife. What can I do about it? Can I improve my relationship, whatever it might be? And how can I improve my relationship with nature? Um, so this, the, the era, this, this uh, Stella, Stella means starry. It's what the alchemist gave a name to this expansion of consciousness. It could, this new era could be the tremendous expansion of our understanding of everything including our scientific understanding. And we could move to a more developed and advanced state of consciousness, which incorporates feeling and relationship as well as mind and intellect, because we've given far too much value to the intellect, and particularly the left hemisphere, the linear thinking of the left hemisphere. And the right hemisphere was neglected, which is the imagination. And the right hemisphere, the brain is connected to the heart, even in the embryo, which I think is fascinating. So as we head towards this stellar era, a few questions. So how do you think we're doing? Like, are people actually waking up <laughs> towards this this era? Do you feel like 
have you seen in the last few decades? Like, are people heading in the right direction? I, I think you referenced some pockets of research in the US and elsewhere. And I'm also curious what you think some or what you would predict some of the hallmarks of this stellar era will be. Like, do you see it as an evolved form of the lunar era where we were harmonious and cooperative, you know, if the stellar era is realized to the full sort of evolution you could imagine, what might that look like? Well, it would mean that we were a cooperative, not a competitive society. That would be the main difference. I think a woman called Rihanna mm-hmm. Eisler has, has very clearly uh, define this. We're going to interview her on one of our episodes. We'll see her talking about the difference between a dominating and participatory, I think she calls it, society. ways. So we would move to a much more participatory, related, oneness feeling. doesn't mean to say we all do the same thing, but we have a feeling of respect for other people. We're not competing with them. We're not trying to get the better of them. We're not trying to make money out of them. We're not using people for our own ends. We're treating them as sacred beings, really. And also we're loving them, which we don't do now. Now it's based on on fear, our relationships. Quite often when we enter the world in our 20s and everything, how am I going to survive in this world? How am I going to get a job? How am I going to find a husband or a wife? You know, it was it's all that sort of thing. Instead of trusting life to lead you where you're meant to go in this particular life that you've, you've come into, the planetary life, now, why are you here? What has brought you here? That's not, we need to talk about that, those questions at the end. And I think also the, the feminine principle is returning very powerfully. And the Holy Spirit, this is supposed to be, this age, age we're entering is supposed to be the age of the Holy Spirit. We've had the age of the Father, the age of the Son, and now we're having the age of the Holy Spirit. We're just on the beginning of that with the age of Aquarius in astrological terms. We're moving into a new era a totally new era, when everything could be transformed if we just understood what could happen. I don't think we're far along the path. We're certainly at the very beginning. Everything is a state of chaos, which is quite natural. When you have a movement from one age to the other, you have a chaotic period when everything breaks down. We've lost the image of God, the old image of God. We need to find a new image of God, which I've been writing about now, which is... Uh, really the feeling of oneness. God is everything that we are. And God is the light that we are. There's not separate, there's no separation. So I think that that is a kind of revelation that people thought about it. Yeah, bringing God inside of us. Yeah, and that the heart is the guide to connection with God, not the mind necessarily, but that much more of the heart, the feeling values, which can be nourished in early childhood. That's another field that needs looking at. The whole field of education is in a, in a terrible mess because we're not treating children in the right way. We're not loving them as they grow up and, and we're giving them sense of competition and the struggle for survival in school, which is all wrong with these exams and everything. We're not developing the artistic side or the musical side. Anyway, that's another whole kettle of fish, so we don't have to go there. But that's another podcast, but I want to do it. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if either of you have children, but what do you feel yourselves? Well, I really haven't put a lot of thought into this. I have two toddlers. It's definitely something that comes up. We have them in Montessori school, 
And I think that's a little different from the traditional schooling system where there's a big emphasis on nature and cooperation and like autonomy. But yeah, you don't get a lot of emphasis on music and creativity necessarily in like the traditional public school system. Certainly it's very competitive because you have to like get test scores and get the best test scores to get into the best college. And then you're off into the career world and competing against everyone for jobs. So yeah, well, a lot of the education system was designed for the industrial age and it'll be really interesting how fast that evolves as I think you referenced even AI earlier and I'm currently pregnant with my first child so I'll be fascinated to see what happens (laughs) once he reaches college age beyond where where we'll be. But I I agree with the the education system has a lot of flaws. You had mentioned earlier, Anne, that you thought women's voices and women coming together would really be a big catalyst moving into this stellar era. I'd love for you to dive back in deeper on your thoughts there. Well, I do think that because men have been in control, not through anybody's thought, it's not their fault, it's how it happened. They've been in control for 4,000 years and they're making a right mess of things now with all this competition and weaponry and nuclear arms and showing who can be better and cleverer. It's really showing penises, saying, I've got a bigger penis than you have. That that sort of thing. (laughs) I mean, look at uh, Kim Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is in North Korea. That's what he's doing every time he fires off a new Thing. He's saying, I'm more clever than you are. I'm, I'm more in advance. And then America's worried about China and preparing for war with China, which is just unbelievably stupid. But it's the habit which takes them along. It's, we have to prepare for the next war. We have to have more weapons, greater weapons, just in case somebody gets ahead of us. It's that that has to go. And I think women are the only group of people on the planet they're after all half of humanity, who can break this spell because it's like a spell. It really is like the fairy tales, like the Sleeping Beauty. We have to waken up the, the, the sleeping womanhood or the sleeping female half of humanity. So otherwise, I think we're going to be, that's, that will be the end of us if it goes on as it is. So for your children's sake, you might enter the fray and see what you can do to... Uh, yeah, and I think that's an important part of awakening that side of the feminine, because I think a lot of women, I know Andrea and I included, have struggled because some of modern feminine has really encouraged women to become more like men, where personally, I I feel that's a disservice to the feminine, where it's really about us awakening to our own feminine power in what we bring that, that men do not to evolve our society into this next era and phase. I'm curious of your take there as well. Like, What can women consider in that awakening or what's your take on that? Well, my take is that women of the feminist movement obviously thought we've got to copy men in order to have power. We've got to be competition in everything like sport. We've got to play football, sh- uh, soccer or whatever you call it. We've got to um, get to the top in everything so that we are equal with men. But equality with men is not the point, really. It's complementarity with men. It should have been like the the, uh, Taoist system, the yin and the yang. 
They are complementary principles, not competitive principles. And feminism, because it's very ignorant feminism, it doesn't know anything about this sort of history that I've been talking about. It doesn't know the background of why it's placed its emphasis on the way it has. It's just angry because it's been the secondary gender for so long that it's sick of it. So it wants to be the first, you know, on parity with the first gender, so to speak. Um, but that's a huge mistake because you lose all the gentleness and the tenderness and the compassion and the relationship side of life. And you just follow the male pattern of competition and achievement, success, money, power. And you're in the same bowl of soup as they are. And it, it's really ridiculous. They don't see it, but I don't have any part of the feminist movement because I'm not interested in power. I'm interested in transformation and love because love is totally missing in our society. It's all about um, competition and achievement and money. Uh, if you look at the, the social media giants, they're not interested in the well-being of the planet. They're interested in the next buck that they can make, all of them, and Bill Gates among them. And I think that that is a disastrous model that's been given to everyone. That's what we've been given to worship, really, as our God. So if women are going to break that pattern, they have to become aware of their own value and their own difference and their own gift. And when you look back at the experience of women over thousands and thousands and thousands of years of being mothers and bringing up children, that is the experience of wisdom that is innate in their being. You don't have to be a mother to have it, but you have to know that your experience of being mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers, it's always been about caring for life. The whole thing is caring for life. It's not power over life. And this is so important for women to understand that they carry the values which are needed now to compensate the values which have been given overemphasis in this male society that we, we find ourselves in or we, that we've created. It's not men's fault. And one should be very gentle with men in, in helping them to understand that they could develop the feminine side of their nature and be much more balanced. I want to give you some role models. You've got Marion Williamson standing for president. You couldn't have a better role model than her. Whether she gets through or not, she's a role model. Then there's June Houston, one of the wisest people in America. There's Jane Goodall, who's led the whole thing of the, from the care of the primates to speaking up for the whole planet. There's a woman called Anna Lowe Spitzman, Smitsman, who has uh, got a movement called Earthwise, which I would advise you to find out about. There's a scientist called Jude Caravan who's just written a book called Gaia and who has, has a whole organization called Whole World. And they're the visioneers, the, the visioneers in Canada, in Vancouver, who've just started a, a huge movement about waging peace instead of war. And I advise you to look at their website because it's full of interesting things and, and interesting innovation, innovative ideas. There are plenty of people all over the planet who are thinking in these new terms, but women may not know about them because they don't know how to, they've never heard of them maybe or never know how to contact them. So they need to come together more too and talk about these things, see what's wrong in their society around them, what may be wrong with the schooling system, what may be wrong in the general organization of their community, 
what they would like to have instead and, and speak up for, for it. Let their voice be heard. And don't be frightened because the problem with women is they've been so terrified in the past of being killed or burnt at the stake or ridiculed by scientists saying you don't know anything, you're just a stupid woman. They've been silenced and, and it's very difficult to get the courage to speak up in a community or in a situation where you're with other people without some training. Um, so you can take a course in public speaking if necessary, <laughs> like I did. And uh, that will give you confidence. But American women, on the whole, have far more confidence than English women. So I think that you've got a head start there because you are articulate. You do know how to express yourselves. And you've got great role models in the ones I've mentioned. Jean Houston is a fantastic role model. But there are many other ones who've been active in the women's movement for, for 20, 30 years, which you can find out about and get um, support from, really. In one of your lectures, I heard you say that it's so important for women to raise their voices because women are predominantly the ones who birth and raise children. And then there be these children, these humans are being destroyed in through war and violence. And um, after I heard you say that, I started paying attention more to current events where women are using their voices to make a difference. And there's examples, even in Russia, there's a mother's group that's like an anti-war group in Iran, in the US, like Moms Against Gun Violence. I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about some examples that You've seen. I, I haven't seen those two examples. I was hoping that the mothers in Russia would rise up as one because they did over the war in Afghanistan and they put an end to it when Russia was fighting in Afghanistan years ago before the Americans got there. Certainly, I was hoping that something would happen, but I haven't really heard of any big movement there. So I'm interested that you mentioned that. And I certainly know about the, the movement in Iran and the immense courage of, of uh, Iranian women. And in that dreadful culture that they live in, when it was such a marvelous, Persia was such a marvelous place for millennia before sort of thing, the cultural, artistic, poetic, wonderful gifts there. So, but it's going to be a hard struggle. Like they, we can see their, the struggle that they're having. And look at the women in Afghanistan. They're completely wiped out, completely silenced, no, not allowed to go to school, not allowed even to go to parks to get some air. I mean, it's a tyranny of such we haven't seen. And... I imagine the people who are looking after this planet. I'm about to publish my mother's messages that she got in the, in the uh, 40s and 50s, saying that we had to change our, our, our whole way of living if we were going to survive. I'm publishing them very shortly. We just don't understand that we can't go on this way and we can't go on having women treated in that way. And this, this whole residue of patriarchal control has to go. And it will go eventually. I don't think the poor women of Afghanistan will be able to throw off that tyranny. But if the movement of women gets going and addresses all the issues enough, there could be an enormous power there. I really do think that. And it's just beginning. What you've mentioned is just beginning, really. And it's very strong in America, essentially. You don't hear about it much, but it's there. And it's been prepared for the last 50 years because I know that when I wrote The Myth of the Goddess in the 90s, that was the, the sort of coming together of many women who were writing books about the goddess at that time, including Rhianne Eisler. 
and but other ones whose books I've got. So there was in the 90s it began this new movement, and it's gathering strength now. But it does take a lot of organization and a lot of communication through the internet, and a lot of dropping the old feminist agenda, and coming together on a sacred mission, really, to save the planet and save our species. It's as urgent as that, for the sake of your children, if they're going to survive. We we have to act now, because if America starts war with China, that'll be pretty much the end. They'll use nuclear weapons, and that will affect the Earth in such a way that it may go into a total decline. Yeah, I think that's a great segue into some of those big questions we can leave the audience with. Where, where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? Well, where do we come from? We come from the universe. We come from this other star systems, if you like, in the universe. And we've come to this planet for a reason. And the reason we're here is to help the planet to become conscious. We are part of the planet. We're part of the life of the planet. We're not separate. So as we become conscious, so the whole Earth um, also develops. It's called the essential ascension process the same kind of ascension that Jesus had when he was resurrected from the dead. We've got to be resurrected from the situation we're in now and ascend into a whole new level of of consciousness, helped, I may say, by people like Jesus and the other great beings out there in the universe. So and where are we going? Well, we're going to a better life and a better relationship with the cosmos, I hope and a better understanding that there are great beings out there who are just waiting to help us all the time if we'd only listen. But we never have time to listen because we're so busy doing things that we're doing. So I hope my book of messages from my mother will help us to listen. And what can the average person do? Well, set time aside in the day to get in touch with your heart, to listen to these questions and to try and answer them for yourself. Really see what your life is like. Are you happy in your life? Are you unhappy? Are you depressed? Are you creative? Where is your creative talent focused? Do you know you have a talent? How can you develop it? But your great talent, it will be coming from the feminine experience, which is to create life, for God's sake. You are the carriers of life. You are the wombs of life. And that womb is precious, absolutely precious more precious than any amount of money or achievement, fame or anything else. Um, Just just listen to your own being and value it and love it and realize what a huge evolutionary process has gone into your being present now on the earth. Why did you choose to come here? You've been here many times before in different incarnations, but why have you chosen this time? What is your particular task in this life? That's beautiful. It's a wild time to be here. And I, I think that's a beautiful reflection for people to to think on. In closing, Anne, if the feminine as a voice could speak and if she could talk, what do you think the primary message would be right now that people may need to hear? I think it would be wake up to love. Wake up to the power of love. Because love is the force that actually creates the universe and holds it together. And nobody knows that because it hasn't been taught to people in the religion. But love is the great creative force of the universe. And we are part of that creation. And we carry that capacity for love within us. 
So put love out wherever you can and take it in for yourself also wherever you can. That was, I think, of the last message there. Power of love. And how can our audience find more of you? And so you, I think you mentioned you have a book of some of your mother's messages coming out. Anything else you'd like to share? And also the, the petition would be good to hear about, the petition that you mentioned. The petition says, all war stops now. That's his top message. And then it gives the reasons because of the trauma we create, because of the terrible suffering we see and experience, as in Ukraine now, what people are going through there. And we have to break this pattern. It's only one page or not even half a page, really, so it's not many things on there. So my websites are www.annbearing.com, and the older one, which is still going, is www.ann-bearing.com. There's an audio vision, a version of my book, The Dream of the Cosmos, on the original website, and I hope all people, all women listening, will respond to my call to stop war and all preparations for war. That's, that's my book, yes. I'm just holding up your book, Anne. <laughs> it looks as if it's been read a lot. <laughs> okay, so I think that's all. And, and there's a great deal on my www.annbearing.com because it's got the quintessence of the dream of the cosmos on it. It's got the different sections in the dream of the cosmos in different sections on that website, including the one on the survival of the soul and that God being omnipresent and that we are part of it. Beautiful. And if people type your name in on YouTube, they can find your lectures. Yeah, they can. And there's there's about 70 or 80 lectures and other things that I'm putting on the website, which I think of interest to people that I think women should know about. Yeah, I mean, in this in this hour and change, we've really only scratched the the surface of your work. And so I really encourage everyone listening to seek more of the wisdom that Anne has to share with us. And we could probably ask you questions for many more hours, but we're unfortunately <laughs> out of time. I would just say that I'm, ni- I'm 91 now and I have a lot of wisdom <laughs> just through age and experience. And I don't know how many more years I have, but I've still got some energy and I'm still writing a final book on the feminine Holy Spirit because that's the thing we couldn't cover, that the, the Holy Spirit was named masculine in the fourth century, but originally it was feminine. Fascinating. Well, we will look forward to that work and we just thank you so much for taking the time today to to be with us and talk with us and so many just incredible things that you've shared that I've learned in this conversation and and things to ponder on. So I really appreciate you, Anne. Thank you for being here. (laughs) 